Hi, everybody. I'm Diane Brady. I'm here with Liz Elting, entrepreneur, philanthropist, now author. Liz, good to see you. Dream big and win. Um, tell me about the genesis of this. What made you decide to write a book? Hi, Diane. So great to be here with you. So I decided to write this book, Dream Big and Win, because when I was in my 20s, when I started my career and started my company, I wished I had found a book like this. I did read every business book I could get my hands on, but a lot of them were very much how to do this and then do that and then do this and then do that. And a little dry and you know didn't they didn't talk about the mistakes that were made along the way and what not to do and i wanted something where i understood the business person or the entrepreneur better because mm -hmm. i love biographies i learned so much from biographies and so i wanted some of that so as a result i wrote this where you know I could basically talk about everything I learned along the way. And I made many, many mistakes, did some things right and did some things wrong. And I wanted to share all of it and talk about what to do to be successful in business. And and one last thing, I tried to make it very you know, entertaining. Um, I was vulnerable. I was authentic. I, I really opened up because yeah. those are the kind of books I like. And so it's kind of like a, a fast paced beach read business read or business read beach read. And that's what I, was I, I to love do the beach read part that we have to get to the beach read. But I should remind people <laughs> that um, one of the reasons that got you here was you were the uh, co-founder of TransPerfect. Talk a little bit about those early days in terms of, you know, what you saw in the marketplace, the need and how you did build it. Because to your point, there have been a lot of barriers, you know, for women and entrepreneurs writ large. But that's a big reason why people are very interested in your life story. Yes, absolutely. So what happened was, uh, in a nutshell, I studied four languages growing up. I had the opportunity to live in five countries, and I determined by the end of high school that I loved languages, and I ended up majoring in languages in college. But I thought, mm -hmm. what on earth am I going to do with that? Ended up uh, working at another translation company right after college, or shortly after college, and I loved it, loved the industry. And this was in the late 80s. But I saw mm -hmm. a real gap between what clients needed and what was available in the industry as far as a top tier provider of language services. We, there needed to be uh, someone like that was along the lines of a top tier investment bank or law firm at, at, with the beginning of globalization. So yeah. I yeah learned that, learned about the gap that was in the industry, went back to school, got my MBA. Uh, actually, I got it in finance and in international business from NYU Stern, loved that experience, had a very brief stint in finance, which I talk about in the book, and um, an experience there where I learned finance was not for me, but I had loved the language industry. And as I said, I saw a real gap between what clients needed and what was available. So at the time, there were 10,000 other translation companies out there. It was a very fragmented industry, lots of moms and pops. So at first I thought, well, why would I do this? But mm -hmm. as I said, I saw the need and I thought, okay, if not now, when? I'm young, I'm used to being poor, I have lots of time, I'm not married, I don't have kids. And so started this company out of an NYU dorm room with the goal to be the world's largest language solutions company. Well, I think that gets to the dream big, because what is it 
that you did that you think differentiated you from all of those thousands of mom and pop translation shops that you mentioned? Sure. Well, those were usually started and run by translators who were extremely talented linguists, much more talented than I was. Mm -hmm. And they were busy owning the company, running the company and doing the translation work. And translation is a very labor intensive task and, and you need a high level of knowledge. And I, I wasn't at the level where I could do it. And so that was probably to my benefit because they were busy translating as they were running their company. Whereas in my case, I had just graduated from business school, had an idea about the industry, but I could focus on growing the company with other people. So what differentiated us is, um, you know, really, I really focused on working on the company rather than in the company. Right, and, right. Yes, and building a team of the absolute network of the absolute best linguists in the industry, and then the best employees in the industry, and sales, 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 to make the re revenue and the profit to reinvest in the company to continually take us to the next level. Now, Liz, I don't want to, you know, color code and stereotype by suggesting that this is aimed at women. I've got Barbie on the mind, perhaps. But is this, you know, specifically aimed at women entrepreneurs and women in business, this book? Yeah, and that's a wonderful question, because as you can imagine, I thought a lot about that before I wrote the book and certainly as I was writing the book. And it's definitely for all women in business. I mean, both uh, uh, new entrepreneurs, people who are thinking about being entrepreneurs, seasoned entrepreneurs, and people who are starting their, their career or are in their career. At the same time, it's also for men. And I didn't want to make it only for women because I thought so many of the lessons I learned along the way were very applicable to men. And so mm -hmm. that's I wrote the book. I wrote it in a way that worked for everybody. And I worked with a lot of amazing men along the way. And I meet a lot of men now who are very interested in how we did it. So it really is for everyone, but from my perspective. So when you think about the, there's been a lot around women in leadership. And, you know, we're of the same Gen X, you know, a generation that came up through business. When you think about through the gender lens, the challenges you face, there's the obvious biological challenges of when one has children, you know, that takes you out of the workforce. But is there anything else you think of that would help to explain why um, you're in the minority, you know, as somebody who has built a huge firm, as somebody who's risen to the top ranks of business? Why, why is it still an issue, you think, that we don't see more women in these roles? In 30 seconds think, or less. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, I think we still have systemic issues. I mean, in our country, we have issues. We don't have paid maternity leave or where they, companies have to give paid maternity leave. Um, we certainly have, we don't have enough women on boards. We don't have enough women in the C-level. We don't have enough women in senior management. So all of these perpetuate these issues. Sorry, go ahead. But what about a, per, but a per, I'm thinking more from a personal perspective. I mean, yeah. when you think about this book in terms of, were there many periods in your career where you thought, okay, this isn't happening because of my gender or other factors? Or was that not something that you think impeded you? Oh, I definitely had challenges along the way because I was a woman. I mean, certainly 
before I started TransPerfect, I had a very brief stint in uh, the proprietary trading division of a French bank. And I, I talk about that in the book, mm -hmm. I mean, a total of six weeks. So certainly I encountered issues there, being a woman. That was in the early 90s. But then along the way, as I was building TransPerfect, people assumed because I was the woman um, and I did have a male partner that mm -hmm. I was the assistant just right away. So that was an issue. And then there were certainly other issues along the way. Um, we didn't have a lot of the systems in place that women need. And I discovered them myself when I had kids and I was trying to run the company and be a mom when my boys were very young. And it was so challenging and we were not set up for that. And I was not able to put those into place into year, until years later. So I know about challenges women have. And then fortunately, later on, we created a women's group at the company. A number of women got together and said, we must do this. And I do know now companies have so much more of this. But I had challenges. I mean, outside of my company, I was a member of YPO, Young Presidents right. Organization. People are familiar with that. I was in a forum group and there were 13 of us who met once a month, the other 12 were men. And they were working all day and then they were going out at night or in their YPO meetings and their their wives were at home. They were in traditional marriages and it was hard being the woman. So yeah. I've encountered many women along the way who have similar challenges. And I talk about that in chapter seven of my book, the balancing it all, but fortunately, so many women are doing it and doing it so well now, but it's still a challenge and we still need to bond together, uh, you know, work together, be in our groups, both within our companies and our groups outside our companies and support one another. And I do know there are a lot of great men out there doing that now yeah. as well. So talk about, it's hard to distill, um, you know, certain lessons, everybody's uh, situation's different and it's contextual, but if you had to think about the advice that you really want people to take away from your experience. Let's let's unpack a little bit. What are some of the tips you would give people that you think could apply to a multiplicity of situations? Well, just certainly on that last issue we were talking about, because that's fresh in my mind, what I didn't talk about and what I learned to do along the way was really compartmentalizing, whereby you go to work, you're all in intensely from whatever time it is, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. or whatever your yep. hours are. It's all about measurable results. So you're intense, you're, you're, you're very focused, and you have ways of you know, giving yourself goals and making yep. sure you achieve them. And then at night, uh, stepping out, being with your family or your friends or whatever you, you do, and then perhaps getting back on email late at night. And then the same thing on weekends, really making your weekend time as much as you can about your non-work activities. And I learned, by the way, just one last thing on the women's thing that uh -huh. I needed to do that or no one would want to work for me or work with me. No one would yeah. want to be in my role or be a manager or anything. So I thought that was very important, but just general rules our general ideas on how to be successful that I learned along the way. And I think this is particularly, particularly relevant right now. It's hard to get funding. We know that. Um, we never, or we didn't get funding. I shouldn't say we never, because we started. You bootstrapped the company from the start? Yeah. From the start in 1992, when we started, it was bootstrapping and it was with 
virtually no money. A couple, a few thousand dollars that I had in my savings account and a few thousand dollars uh, credit card advance. And actually my partner had $90,000 in school debt. So, so we had to pay that off. So yeah. we were naked from the beginning. And di- the way we did it was focusing on sales, sales, sales. Hundreds of phone calls each day. And at the time we sent out hundreds of letters based on who we found out at a company could use our services. And that was absolutely critical. And then, of course, what we did was once we got a client in, spoiling them with service and quality. And that was critical because intense So sales, building loyalty. Oh, absolutely. And that was a key differentiator. One of the reasons I wanted to start TransPerfect was I learned at the other company I was at, uh, it wasn't service oriented enough. It, they couldn't turn things around fast enough. The quality was not what it should be. They were not a one-stop shop. And finally, they didn't necessarily anticipate clients needs before they knew they had them. So these were all the ways I wanted to differentiate TransPerfect uh, and have a dream culture, <laughs> be an employer of choice in our industry and ideally any industry, because I found it was often production versus sales, sales versus production at the other company. And I wanted everyone on the same team. So these are some of the things that I highly recommend. Sales, 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 getting that first client or that first project, and then turning that into that one project into multiple projects from a client and the multiple projects into a relationship and then referrals, of course, and this is all by intense hard work, uh, having goals, being tough on yourself and making sure you meet the goals. And then once you bring in that client, spoiling them so business explodes, as I said, from the repeat business and referrals. You mentioned this is a beach read. I'm curious, what in what way? Um, give 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 me some of the ways of what did you want to sure. do differently from the average business book that you've yes, read? Yes, and this is what I haven't talked about at all in this conversation, but I think I was very open about all of the challenges I had growing up and and throughout my life. I was vulnerable, and I think I. I told some funny some stories there's definitely humor in this book is there a particular story you'd want to share here that you think was formative for you as as a leader oh wow you know there there were so many um but you know one that i talk about in the book okay this is this is kind of a, a funny one there i was in sixth grade in grade six in toronto um and there were about 60 of us and we went to our music class and actually it was two classes and that's why it was 60 people. Mm-hmm. And there I was um, in the group and we were all standing up and we were singing a song I loved because I loved singing. It was Joseph and the amazing Technicolor or his amazing Technicolor dream coat. Yeah. So there I am singing, having the best time. The music teacher walks around or walks down the row listening to each person and there I am just in my element or so I think and and then she stops at me and she says this is it and I thought wow I'm going to get a solo I, I she loves me I'm the best. yeah she said this is the problem you're <sighs> off me. <laughs> you have to leave you are messing this all up in front of 60 people so I ended up having to leave that music class and every music class for the rest of the year. And really? That would be grounds for a lawsuit these days, having a teacher yes. point out your 
say you're tone deaf and kick you out of music class. That's so audacious. Right. It was audacious and it was horrible and it was humiliating that day. And then every music class, I was downstairs by myself in the classroom while everyone else was upstairs singing. So, I, yeah, I learned from that. If you're going to call people out, don't do it. In public. Well, you know, that actually, was- what I take from that, because I did a lot of college debating and I feel like my role as a mother is to embarrass my children, partly because does that not make you somewhat immune to embarrassment when that sort of thing happens? It, it, in a way, it must make you think, well, you know what? I survived that. So oh, I, I take that actually as a story like, look, you could be singled out of your music class and here you are today. Wish you could talk to that music teacher. But it, like it's what seems to hold a lot of women back is our fear of being judged, our fear of having that kind of situation happen to us, being singled out for the wrong reasons. Oh, completely. And then if you read my story, my anecdote about my grade 10 and how humiliated I was then. then. And I thought, boy, if I can go through this in grade 10 of high school, I can get through anything. So very much to your point. And and I think that's what makes it very readable and relatable for people because we we all go through this. And after we do, we think, if I can do this, I can do anything. And, and one other story I have that I think Mm -hmm. is, is a good one is another thing that happened while I was growing up in Toronto is I, we went to something called my sister and I Raven ski club. And we were fortunate to get to ski Saturday mornings. We would go 6am to uh, the end of the day, about 5pm every day to Northern Ontario. Okay. One day there was a horrendous storm. It was incredibly dangerous. And three quarters of the people didn't end up going on the bus up to Georgian Peaks. But my sister and I did because my parents said, yeah, you're going. And I said, yeah, I want to go because there's a race today and I, I want to win. And I wasn't a very good skier. I wasn't, I mean, but I, I was competitive. And so my sister and I went and only about a quarter of the people went. As a result, I was able to win. And not because I'm a great skier, because I'm not. <laughs> but so you show you show I up. There up. you go. There's another yeah. lesson. I love that. Showed show up. up in a storm, I, no less. Yes. And I talk about um, at Goldman Sachs, when we were trying to get Goldman Sachs' business, when everybody else was shutting down for the holidays, we showed up and actually pulled an all-nighter at Goldman Sachs when no one else was available to do work. And that's how we clinched their business. So much like the ski anecdote, did the same thing at Goldman Sachs and then brought in Goldman Sachs as a huge client. So showing up when others don't can right. make a tremendous difference. The hustle. Before we go, there's one thing I am curious about being a Canadian myself, full disclosure, I notice you say Toronto, not Toronto, but does that an advantage or a disadvantage? Do you think, especially as you grew in the U.S. market, did it make any difference having grown up in Canada? You know, I think it's just the idea of growing up in multiple places. I was hmm. incredibly fortunate. Is As I said earlier, I lived in five countries. I was right. in New York when I was little. I was able to live in Portugal when I was eight and nine, study French and Portuguese, then Toronto <laughs> when mm-hmm. I was older. And that was great. Another culture then uh, did my junior year in Spain, worked in Venezuela after college. So I think it's the idea. Of the global experience. Yes, and I think it's a wonderful thing for all of us. The more different 
experiences we have in different places in different parts of the country, different parts of the world is so valuable for all of us. So yeah, I think it made a difference and I'm just so grateful for it. And l let me ask one other question, which is we, you, this is about chronicling your business life and what you've built. You've, you're very active now in philanthropy with your foundation and sometimes I don't know if we look at it with the same sort of rigor and step-by-step -step approach. How do you think about philanthropy and how, and talk a little bit about your foundation. Are the lessons that in this book also what you apply in that realm as well? Very much so. I think one of the things I talk about in this book is if you translate your passion into purpose, if you love what you're doing, it it sustains you and it makes it so you will work hard and you will see the value of it, um, which is certainly what I focused on with TransPerfect. And now today, what am I passionate about? What needs do I see out there? Same as actually mm -hmm. the case with uh, transparent. What needs are there and what am I passionate about? And certainly I'm seeing one need after another. And with my foundation, it's uh, our mission is to help support and empower women and people from marginalized populations. Uh, we do that through entre supporting entrepreneurs, supporting education. I feel like entrepreneurship and education are two great equalizers. Mm -hmm. And then along the way, finding all these other needs, whether it's hunger, whether it's gun safety, whether it's public health, like cancer and heart disease. And the reason I say that is, again, it, is there a need and are am I passionate about solving that problem? So I think it can be translated. And then it's all about results, right? Uh, I think if you can't measure it, you can't manage, manage it. Of course, that's important in business. And the same thing needs to carry over with philanthropy. Yeah. Well, the book is Dream Big and Win. Liz, it's a pleasure to talk with you, and I, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Thank you so much, Diane. It's wonderful to talk to you.